I watched a YouTube video today by a preacher who said he grew up believing in the pre-tribulation rapture. Believed it all his life until he went to seminary and, they, well, they taught it out of him. And one thing I was thinking as I was watching that is, as he was saying, there's not a single verse in the Bible that even talks about the rapture. I said, well, you and I aren't reading the same places in the Bible. Where do most people start when they think about end times prophecy? Sometimes Matthew 24. Oftentimes they start with the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation refers back directly or indirectly to every other book of prophecy. Which means if you just start with Revelation, you miss most of the story. Would you believe Revelation even quotes from Jeremiah chapter 17 tonight? It does. So open your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 17 as we pick up tonight in verse 9. Where we left off last week, verses 7 and 8 read like this as you're turning. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river. And will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green. And will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And did we not last week have to look at the book of Revelation, the chapters 20 through 22, about the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth? Well, we'll have to look in Revelation again tonight as we pick up in verse 9. But the premise here is that Israel no longer trusts in the Lord. They put their trust in other gods, in other forces. They're trusting in the military of Egypt to defend them. Anything but turning and putting their faith and trust in the Lord. What does the scripture say? Without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. Verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful. Above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? What does this mean, the heart is deceitful above all things? It means that if you are straying from the way God laid out, through his commandments, statutes, and judgments, and decide to go your own way, and do what's right in your own eyes, are you likely to be going the same direction as God? The answer is no. By the heart, it doesn't mean the vessel that pumps blood. They didn't even have Gray's Anatomy back then. It means the inward thoughts and feelings of the person. If you just go by what feels right, what feels good, what I think would be the right thing to do, you're going to go astray. Let's turn first to Proverbs chapter 17. King Solomon wrote a lot about the heart and how desperately wicked it is. So Proverbs chapter 17, let's start in verse 20. Proverbs chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 20 reads, He who has a deceitful heart finds no good. 
I mean, if you're following that deceitful heart of yours, it will not lead you into things that are good in the eyes of God. It says, and he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. Continuing with uh, what Solomon wrote, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. Ecclesiastes follows Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3. says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that, they go to the dead. Does that sound like Genesis chapter 6, when God said that the hearts of men were just evil continually? It turns out that in the days of King Solomon, it was still the same. People's hearts were leading them astray. Let's go to the book of Psalms, chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10, verse 13. Psalms chapter 10, verse 13. This answers the question, how is it that the wicked can renounce God? If you think back to Mount Sinai, but close your eyes for a minute, and picture the Lord God coming down upon Mount Sinai in fire. The mountain is trembling, the earth is rumbling beneath them, the mountain is on fire. They hear a trumpet that gets louder and louder, they hear the very, ver- the very voice of God, and then they want. They build a golden camp. Is it that they didn't know there was a God? They knew there was a God, but their wicked hearts renounced God. And verse 13 of Psalm 10 asks, why would that happen? It says, why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, you will not require an account. That is, the wicked says, there's no judgment day. We're never going to be called to account. God isn't going to judge us. What did the Pope just say recently? I picture hell is empty because of the grace and mercy of God. He doesn't think anybody's going to go. Well, that's what the wicked here are saying. Is that we can do what we want and God will never hold us accountable for it. Is that what the Bible teaches? That is not what the Bible teaches. Let's go back to Proverbs. To Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16. We may see this one more than once today or tomorrow. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Do you want to be doing any one of these things if the Lord hates them? No. It says, yes, seven are an abomination to him, literally to his soul. A proud look, meaning proud eyes. Eyes that will not humble themselves before God, but say, who is God to me? A lying tongue. What does the scripture say about all liars? They have their part in the lake of fire. Hands that shed innocent blood. 
Does abortion run through your mind when you hear that? A heart that devises wicked plans. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. We should be running when there's evil, but which way? Away from it, not toward it. In 19, a false witness who speaks lies. And one who soars discord among brethren. To Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, verse 23. If you remember when we studied Zechariah chapter 13, the one-third of Israel that comes through the tribulation period will be like silver put through the fire seven times, right? Put through the fire to remove the dross. Well, verse 23 here refers to that dross says, fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. The dross are the cast-offs, the things of no value. Why would you cover earthenware with silver? To make it strong, right? But you cover it with silver dross and you end up with a fragile, breakable container. Let's go to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7. Hosea means salvation. Hosea chapter 7 verse 2. Talking about the iniquity of the northern kingdom of Israel before they got sent out into the, uh, the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE says, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They're before my face. What does God mean? God's like an elephant. He never forgets. And judgment is coming, isn't it? They were saying to themselves that we will never be called to account. And God says, bye See ya. Because they were called to account. Let's go back to Jeremiah 17 to verse 10. Wayne. Yes, sir, Edmund. Um, there's, back in Jeremiah verse 6, there's an image which fits all the things you've said, which I haven't seen a translator get at all right. In verse 6, it says, um, he's like, a shrub in the desert, and different translations have shrub, heath, tamarisk, all sorts of things there, and it, all of them are wrong. It's actually um, a arara tree, and their fruit are sometimes called Sodom's apples. Um, you find them in, well, you find them down by the Dead Sea in very, very arid places, but they look absolutely wonderful. And they have these green fruit. Um, and people say, oh, can we eat them? And we'll have a look at them. And it feels nice. It's a bit smaller than a peach. And we, but when you break it open, it looks beautiful. It's beautifully green. And, you, you know, it's the only tree you can see for miles. And you break it open and there's 
puff like smoke, which is how in medieval times they describe them. It's all the spores inside. But there's a bit of sticky liquid inside, which is actually poisonous. The Bedouin use them for tipping their arrows. And the whole idea of that verse 6 is that it looks great on the outside, uh, uh, but ins inside it's, it's the exact opposite, which is what Jeremiah 17 is talking about so much. But some of the translations even try to make it look like a positive, where it's clearly a negative. It, right. it looks great, but it's actually the opposition is the guy that's by planted by the water. Gotcha. That's why you get those two examples. One looks good, but is exactly the opposite. So tell Where us what that tree is called again. It's called a Narara tree. I, I can't remember the Latin name, but um, the Arara. And if you look in the text, okay, um, you'll. It's. Um, I can't quite remember what the Hebrew is, but it, it's in that direction. But that it's a Narara tree. And it's sometimes the fruit are called Sodom's apples. Jeremiah 17, And there are medieval texts talking about it. They say it smokes with the evil of Sodom, but it's actually that thing of when you break it open, there's a sort of poof, and it, it squirts all this spores in the air like a cloud. So they used to talk about it in medieval terms of smoking with the fires of Sodom. The Hebrew is arar. Yeah, it's an arara tree. Okay, the but Hebrew the just doesn't have that last awe. Arar is the way it is in Hebrew. Various of them say bush, some of them say tamarisk, and they completely miss the point because they've got the wrong... The wrong but it's uh, you only see it in single ones, and it's in extremely inhospitable places. Gotcha. And it looks great, but it is... Exactly the opposite. There's nothing there. Thank you for that. Excellent. Now to Jeremiah 17, verse 10. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart. God's just told us the heart is deceitful above all things. But God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. Revelation 2, verse 23. You notice Revelation 2 is the letters to the seven churches. Revelation 2, 23 says, I will kill her children with death, referring to Jezebel and her children. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each of one of you, each one of you, according to your works. This is coming directly from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. Where God has just said that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And who can know it? But God can know it. God can search out the heart. He knows your reasons. He knows why you do what you do. Even if you don't necessarily know yourself why you do what you do. So back in Jeremiah 17, 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. What's he searching for? He's searching for faith. 
Is faith the reason we do what we do? Are we following God's instructions? Are we walking down his way? Are we following the shepherd along the way the shepherd is leading? I test the mind. It says, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Again, let's go back and look at Revelation 2.23 one more time. And see how Revelation 2.23 ends essentially the same way. She says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. What does the word works mean? The things we do, how we serve God. Are we obedient to God or aren't we? So here in verse 10 it says, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. His doings, his works, talk about the same thing. Do you follow after God with a loving, faithful heart, or do you follow after your own ways? That's a problem I have with theologians who say, well, Let's divide the commandments of God into civil, moral, and ceremonial, and we decide we'll only have to follow the moral. What they're doing is saying, these are the commandments we think we ought to follow, and the others we think we shouldn't. Do we get to choose which of God's commandments are applicable? No, God does. God tells us what we need to do. Is there anything in Paul's writings that sounds like the end of verse 10? Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his works. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 6. And we'll start in verse 5 so we don't start in the middle of a sentence. So starting in Romans 2, 5, it says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, yeah, that sounds just like Jeremiah 17, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. That's what the people said will never be called to account. Yeah, the day of wrath is judgment day. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to what? To his deeds. But Paul goes on to explain that further. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Wait a minute. Does that say we're saved by good works? No. It means that eternal life is given to those who are seeking God with their whole heart. Out of love, out of faith, being obedient to God because he is God, because he is our Lord, he is our master, he is our father. What do we read in Malachi? If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my reverence? So eternal life to those who by patient continuance... In doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, what is self-seeking? People who want to do their own thing. They don't care about God. Their hearts are cold toward God. And do not obey the truth, Psalm 119, verse 142. But obey unrighteousness. What, what do they seek? What do they get? 
indignation and wrath. In other words, that's the judgments being poured out in the tribulation period. Tribulation and anguish. Let's look also at Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 20. It's not, yes, ma'am. Uh, in Romans 2, 7, where it says patient continuance, would that be, mean ongoing action? Yep, sure would. Okay, thank you. Yep. It won't be the only time we point out ongoing actions tonight, probably. Jeremiah 11, verse 20. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, if a judge is judging righteously, what if you deserve judgment? Then you're going to get it. Testing the mind and the heart. Same thing we see in chapter 17. Testing the mind and the heart. Let me see your vengeance on them, for I have revealed my cause. Come judgment day, is God going to need us to tell him what we have done? Is he going to know what we did, why we did it, what our motivation was? Was it pure of heart? Was it out of love of God and love for your neighbor? Or was it self-seeking? Yeah, he's going to know. Go to Psalm 67 verse 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What does the nations refer to? The Gentiles, all the nations of the world. For you, that is the Lord God, shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Selah, which means stop and think about it. God will judge not just Israel, but also the nations. And he will judge everyone righteously, meaning he will give us what we earned through our works. Do we do what was right? Do we do it for the right reasons? Do we do it to serve God? Or do we do it for self-serving reasons? God examines not just what we do, but why do we do it? Psalm 96, verse 10 Psalm 96, verse 10. Psalm 96 begins, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. So we know Psalm 96 is about the entire world. We come down to verse 10, it says, Say among the nations, it's talking about the Gentile nations of the world, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Every time you see a reference to God judging, you're going to find he judges righteously. Let's turn back to Isaiah. Isaiah. Chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is about the Messiah, Messiah Yeshua, 
who will be king of kings and lord of lords and will rule over and judge the entire world. Verse 3 begins, His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. That's Revelation 19, isn't it? Yeah. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And then, what did Peter have to say in 1 Peter chapter 2? First Peter chapter 2. In chapter 1 he said, Be ye holy as the Lord is holy. Paraphrasing. And in First Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 24, he goes into more detail. First Peter chapter 2. Verses 20 to 24. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. Meaning if you're being beaten because you deserve to be beaten, what credit is that? When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. So if they beat you for your faith, then God will put it to your credit. For to this you were called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins, might live for what? For righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. What's righteousness the opposite of? Lawlessness. If you have been saved by faith, then God requires and expects you to live for righteousness. To put aside the old man. Stop living as you did before you got saved. Clean up your act and live righteously. Which verse says, don't no longer live as you did like the Gentiles. That's Ephesians 4.17, right. So there's many verses we could go to, but I think that establishes the fact that God is a righteous judge. And come judgment day, you want him to find you to be walking in righteousness. There's even more on this topic. Let's go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22 is the last chapter of the last book in the Bible. And it tells us about how we will be rewarded come judgment day if we are found to walk in faith. Saved by faith, because there's no other way to be saved. Revelation 22:12. And behold... I am coming quickly. 
I saw a Facebook post this week. Somebody said, I am coming soon. This word does not mean soon. It means that when the second coming of the Lord begins, it progresses to an ending quickly. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So when do we get the rewards from Messiah? When he comes, the judgment day. So Revelation chapter 4, when you see the rapture and resurrected saints wearing their crowns and their robes, which are the rewards they've received, that tells you that judgment day has come. And the rapture and the resurrection has come. Is this the only place in the Bible that says we're rewarded according to our work? What we did. Let's go back to the book of Job, chapter 34. Job, chapter 34. We're going to start in verse 10, so we make sure we understand the context. Job 34, beginning in verse 10. It says, Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. God doesn't do that. Verse 11, 4, because he repays man according to his work, and makes man to find a reward According to his way. Come judgment day, you will get rewarded. If what? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do your work survive judgment? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 11. As soon as we start to read it, you're going to go, oh yeah, that's right, I knew those verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11 and going through at least verse 14. Maybe a little farther. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Messiah Yeshua. Which means salvation is by faith, and if you don't have Messiah you don't have salvation. Now if anyone builds on this foundation, what did you do after you got saved? Before you got saved, it's all gone. Nothing you did was of eternal value. Once you get saved, what do you build on it? If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, those are good works, done with good motives. And then there's also wood, hay, and straw. How does wood, hay, and straw stand up to a fire? Burned in a minute. Verse 13 says, each one's work, just like we saw in Revelation twenty-two twelve, each one's work will become clear for the day, what day? The day of the Lord will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What's fire a picture of? Judgment. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. 
why does the Bible talk so much about judgment? Because as Peter says, if we keep our eyes on judgment day, maybe we'll live a little more righteously. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man, who's that talking about? Messiah Yeshua. Will come in the glory of his Father. That's Ezekiel chapter 43. With his angels. And then he will reward each according to his what? According to his works. Are you starting to see a pattern? If you think so, let's go to 2 John chapter 1. And see if we can make it more clear. 2 John chapter 1. We don't go to 2 John a lot, do we? Verse 8. Look to yourselves, which means be very careful how you live your life. That we do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. So John says, come judgment day, our works are going to be tested. Do you want your works to survive? Do you want to get a reward from the Lord? Then look to yourselves, be careful, keep yourself in check. Make sure you're walking in faith and love, honoring the commandments, statutes, and judgments of our Lord and Savior. Of course, we all know Matthew chapter 7. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. About the broad road and the narrow road. One of the Facebook posts that I saw today said, the rapture is coming and about 2.8 billion people are going to get taken. And you read the comments, and the comments start out, where do you think 2.8 billion people are going to go? And I understood what he's trying to say. Are there really 2.8 billion people that are saved by faith and walking uprightly before the Lord? I hope so. But Matthew chapter 7 says most of those that think they're on the road to heaven are not. And that's what verses 13 through 20 are about. But I want to just do the short version and start in verse 15. Beware of false prophets, false teachers, teachers who teach the scriptures, but they teach them incorrectly. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, they pretend to be God's ministers. They may even think they are says, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Their teaching destroys the sheep. They don't feed the sheep. They don't lead the sheep upon the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And verse 16 says, how do we know whether we're looking at a false teacher or a true teacher? It says, you'll know them by their fruits, which is another term for, for their works. If they are not following God, how are they going to lead you? 
to God. So look at how they are walking. Look at how they're living. If they're teaching you to break God's commandments, what does Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 say? But run, right? And that's what Matthew 7 is trying to get across to us too. And it says in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you are walking in lawlessness, it doesn't matter who you're following. You're going the wrong direction. You're being led astray. That's why verses 21 to 23 really but just boil it down to a nugget. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean just somebody who on judgment day says, Lord, Lord, but somebody that's calling the Lord, Lord today. Not everyone who's calling the Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They're speaking it with their lips, but where is their heart? That's Matthew 15 and Mark 7. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, son of the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, see, we're talking about judgment day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Are any of those bad things? No, they're not bad things, but they're not what God commanded. So verse 23 says, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So instead of keeping God's commandments, statutes, and judgments, they're doing good works that they think are better. Things that they think God should want. And what does God want? God wants obedience. He wants what he told us to do. All right, let's go back to Jeremiah. I don't want to get too preachy. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 11 reads, As a partridge that broods, meaning sits on eggs, but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by right. So it's like a bird that sits on another bird's nest. But the hatchlings, when they hatch, they fly away because they do not know this partridge. They don't know this bird. That's why it goes on. It will leave him in the midst of his days. And at his end, he shall be a fool. These words had a lot of meaning back in the days Jeremiah wrote it. Because Jewish theology back in those days said, if you're rich, it's because God loves you because you're so righteous. And if you're poor, it's because you're such a sinner that God curses you. And what does the scripture say? That's not necessarily the case. Wealth that is not earned is not of any eternal value. And verse 12 then says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. At first glance, that looks like it's misplaced, like it doesn't belong here. But what does that mean? 
Where does God sit? God sits on a throne in heaven. So that's the glorious high throne from the beginning. That is God's throne in the eternal heavens. And that is the place of our sanctuary. That is, that's the place that we look forward to. David prayed often in the Psalms that one day he could stand in the presence of God in his sanctuary and minister before him. So even though God sits in the heavens on his high and glorious throne, he still sees into our very hearts and our minds to judge what we do and why we do it. So that's why 12 and 13 are grouped together. If your Bible is like mine, that puts spaces like we're changing topic. It's not really a change of topic, just a change of perspective. It's to bring our thoughts and minds to the fact that God is higher than we are. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Verse 13 says, O Lord, and there's the tetragrammaton, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me, that's the you is now me, a different perspective. Instead of talking to God, God speaking. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. That verse brings your mind back to what event in the book of John? Where the woman's caught in adultery and brought to the Lord? Yes, but let's start a little before that. Go back to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Specifically verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, so that's Hoshana Rabbah, the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in the fall. Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So he says in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He is claiming to be the fountain of living waters of Jeremiah 17, 13. Do you see that connection? And this is scripture that would have been read that day at Hoshana Rabbah at the house of the water pouring ceremony. And then in chapter 8 verse 1, it is the next day. What comes after the seventh day of tabernacles? The eighth day of the seven day feast of tabernacles. That's right. Shemini at Sarah, the concluding assembly. Verse 1. But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. So this is the evening. The events at the temple are completed for the day. He's going to the Mount of Olives to rest for the night. Now early in the morning, so it's the morning of the eighth day, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. What should they have brought? The man and the woman. So he knows they're not coming for justice. 
says, And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They think it's a juridical question. That if he says stoner, they're going to say, look, he's heartless. He doesn't love. He's a heartless person. And if he says, let her go, they're going to say, aha, he's a lawbreaker. But he knows that they're there to trap him. So verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Yeshua stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What did Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 13 say? He's writing in the ground their names. So they continued asking him. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. The oldest, they presume, would be the wisest, the most learned. The ones who were looking at the names getting written in the ground going, uh-oh, we just went over this yesterday. And Yeshua was left alone and the woman is standing in the midst. Now, does Yeshua say, I don't care that you're committing adultery? No. Verse 10, when Yeshua had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Yeshua said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and what? Sin Sin no more. Which means what? Stop sinning. sinning. Repent. Turn back to God. Be obedient to God. Stop sinning. Hmm. Then to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. First, what? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Who's speaking here? They've forsaken me. Who's me? The Lord. Secondly, and they've hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So first, they turned away from me. I'm the fountain of living waters, which teaches about the Holy Spirit, according to John chapter 7. But they hewed for themselves cisterns that are broken. That can hold no water. That would have been an illustration that everybody in Jeremiah's day could know. Because at the Temple Mount, if you go under the Temple Mount and look, there are huge cisterns that are cut out of the rock. And they're covered over with limestone coating. And they divert streams of water in the rainy season into those cisterns. And then they drink and use water from the cisterns all through the dry season until the next winter when the rains fall and the cisterns fill up again. But if the cistern's broken, what kind of water do you get out of it? 
So is there any other source for the Holy Spirit other than our Messiah Yeshua? No, he is the only source. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12 is another portion that's read at the Simchat Beit HaShoivah ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles at the House of the Water Pouring that we just read about in John chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. You will say, O Lord, I will praise you. Though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. He's my Yeshua, that's what it says. I will trust and not be afraid. For Adonai, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. We know from John 7, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. We take the Holy Spirit from our Messiah, Yeshua, the fountain of the living waters. He is that well of salvation. So also in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. Zechariah 14, which you know very well, it's about the day of the Lord, about the end of the tribulation period when Messiah returns for the battle of Armageddon and establishes the kingdom where all nations will flow from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. But we're in chapter 14, verse 8. Are we there? Looks like we are. And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. It shall be that living waters, Mayim Chaim, shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. That living water flows from under what? Under Messiah's throne. He is still that source of the living water. First line says, then the Lord shall be king over what? All the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. That is the entire earth is going to know that our Messiah Yeshua is Lord and always has been. Back to Jeremiah 17, we're up to verse 14. Jeremiah 17, 13 was about the Lord being the fountain of living waters. And verse 14 says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Jeremiah is praying and praising the Lord. And he's recognizing that the Lord is the fountain of living waters and the only source of the living waters that can bring healing. The only source of salvation that can bring salvation. And he is truly worthy to be praised. Let's go to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. 
Psalm 55, verse 16, in fact. Who wrote this? David did. Not just king, but also a prophet. In Psalm 55, 16, it says, As for me, I will call upon God. And the Lord shall save me. Who does David say the Lord is? The Lord is God. God is the Lord. And the Lord, our Messiah Yeshua, is the source of salvation. So as Jeremiah prays, save me and I shall be saved. That was David's prayer as well. I will call upon God and the Lord will save me. Go back to Jeremiah 17 to verse 15. Uh-oh. Indeed, they say to me, who's the me? That's Jeremiah. Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. Oh my goodness. What's Jeremiah been prophesying? He keeps prophesying the word of the Lord. He keeps prophesying repent or destruction comes. And they're saying, gee, where is it? You keep prophesying repent or be destroyed and we're just fine. All our other prophets say, don't worry about it. God's not going to do nothing to us. God is long-suffering, wanting all to come to repentance. And the next word is, but. Yeah, that's 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's go up to 2 Peter chapter 3. So these people in Jeremiah 17 are mocking the prophet. Exactly. 2 Peter chapter 3. There will be verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. It was happening in Jeremiah's day. They're mocking the prophets, saying, you keep saying if we don't repent, judgment's coming. We ain't repenting and nothing's happening. We're just fine. But 2 Peter chapter 3, as Daniel points out, says in verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the next word is, but. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Meaning the mockers are going to mock until one day the judgments fall. And then they're going to stop mocking. But then it's going to be too late. So back to Jeremiah 17, they're mocking the prophet saying, we're not repenting, we refuse to repent, God hasn't judged us, you're just flapping your gums. So in verse 16, Jeremiah is going to get a little impertinent. It'll come back to bite him. Jeremiah says, as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you. Or have I desired the woeful day? 
You know what came out of my lips? It was right there before you. What Jeremiah means is, I didn't ask to be your prophet. I did not seek to bring harm to Judah and my countrymen. Lord, I'm giving these messages as you give them to me. And yet, they won't hear it. Jeremiah 17 verse 18 says, Let them be ashamed who persecute me. He's talking about the people in verse 15. In fact, we're going to find that they continuously try and put Jeremiah to death to get him to shut up. Because they don't want to hear the message of repentance. They want to continue in their sin without consequences. So verse 17 says, Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. So he's praying that the Lord will give him some cover, if you will, some protection from his countrymen, even his own family members who want to put him to death. In verse 18 he says, Let them be ashamed who persecute me. To be ashamed means what? Don't let my prophecies fail. Let my prophecies come to pass. Let those who mock, let their mock and fail. Do not let me be put to shame, meaning don't let my prophecies fail. I'm only giving them the words that you give me. Let them be dismayed, meaning not me. Do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom. Oh, Jeremiah's getting a little upset. He's saying, Lord, why don't you go ahead and toast them now? He says, and destroy them with double destruction. <laughs> well, yeah, he's a little unhappy. And he's going to get a comeuppance from it in a minute. But verse 19 goes on to say, Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, I want you to go to each and every one of the gates, because people come in and out the gates. And I want everybody, whichever gate they use, I want them to hear my words. And here we are in verse 20. And say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Do you sense a woodshed experience is coming? Yeah, that's certainly what it's looking like. Verse 21, thus says the Lord, who said it? The Lord said it. So this is the prophet saying, Thus says the Lord, I got this from the mouth of God. Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. 
Hmm. What does it mean to take heed? Listen very carefully. And it's even a little stronger than that. It's actually to be on your guard. To watch because this is coming. Be aware. Be on guard. When it says bear no burden, it's literally do not lift or carry a load. On it says here, the Sabbath day. But that's not what the Hebrew says. And I wanted to take a moment to look at that more specifically. Let's go back to Exodus 31. God bless you. Exodus 31. Most of you in here have either studied biblical Hebrew or you've been listening to me talk about it till you just absorbed it. Exodus chapter 31, verse 15. God bless you. We'll start in verse 12, but I want to break down verse 15 word by word when we get there. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, what's that word saying? A quote. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, meaning don't change a word of it. Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it's a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done, it's actually work may be done for six days. But the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Now I want you to look at the Hebrew for verse 15. It begins literally, six days, work may be done. Then it says, Uva Yom, Hashviyi, Shabbat, Shabbaton. It says, and the day that is the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Shabbat, Shabbaton. The Sabbath of rest. And it goes on to say, it's holy to the Lord. Whoever does work, on the day of the Sabbath. It's a word pair. On the day of the Sabbath. And then it says. Mot yamut. So surely shall be put to death. But throughout the scriptures. We see in English. The Sabbath day. But it's the day of the Sabbath. The day that God rested. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. So it doesn't say count six days and whenever you come to a seventh one, that's the Sabbath day, as it tends to get interpreted. Go to Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested, that is, he Shabbated. That's the Hebrew verb Shabbat, from which we get the noun Sabbath. On the seventh day, from all his work which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested, he shabbated from all his work which God had created and made. So when it says the day of the Sabbath, it means the day that God rested. It doesn't mean pick one. Throw the seven days of the week into a hat, shake it up and down and pick one out, and that's the Sabbath day, as people tend to interpret it. It is the day that God rested. So let's go back to Jeremiah 17. And in verses 21 to 22, where it says, On the Sabbath day, the Hebrew literally says, Bayom HaShabbat, on the day of the Sabbath, the day that God rested. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. God tries to explain that to us in Exodus 20, but I think sometimes we read over it without thinking real hard about it. Of course, maybe you guys are bigger thinkers than I am. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. While you're turning there, I'm going to turn into the Hebrew. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. Which says, Zachor et Yom HaShabbat. Remember the day of the Sabbath. So in my English here, it says, remember the Sabbath day. But the Hebrew says, remember the day of the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall, change the shall to may labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So the seventh day is not your Sabbath. It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God, the day he rested. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger. Who's that? That's the non-Jew who wants to worship God and do away with the pagan idols. Who is within your gates. In Hebrew, that's the ger hasha'ar. For in six days, what is for me? Because, here's why, God commands us to remember the day that he rested. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested, he shabbated on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the day of the Sabbath and hallowed it. If we were as careful about the day of the Sabbath as God is commanding in scriptures, would we be misled by some scientists who said we evolved from monkeys? No. The Sabbath every week keeps us focused on the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. That he did it in six days and then he rested. And he set that day that he rested aside. And we remember it. We remember and recognize and state as our faith principle that God created the heavens and the earth. We didn't just evolve. 
One thing that really breaks my heart is to hear theologians speak about theistic evolution. That evolution took billions of years and there were pre-Adamic races and they all died out and this happened and that happened, but God directed it all. So it was evolution, like Darwin says, but God was behind it. If theistic evolution is true, and there are animals and races that lived and died before Adam and Eve sinned, then death didn't come from sin. And if death is not a consequence of sin, just think of where that leads one to start doubting all that God did. Let's go back to Jeremiah before I get all preachy. Verses 21 and 22. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves, be careful, guard, the word is shamar, and bear no burden that is lift or carry nothing on the day of the Sabbath, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, the day of the Sabbath. Nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. That word hallow is a pael verb. A paal verb is simple action. Pael is strong emotion. And this is a verb of strong emotion. It means to consecrate, to set it apart unto God, to treat it as holy. To treat it as different from the other days of the week. Let's go to Psalm 50. In Exodus 31, what does God say is the sign that we worship him? That we keep the Sabbath. Psalm chapter 50, verses 16 and 17. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? That is, even to talk about them. Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you. That's the opposite of consecrating God's words. Back to Jeremiah 17. Go on to verse 23. But they did not obey nor incline their ear. What does that mean? They didn't obey because why? They didn't want to. They did not want to hear it. But made their neck stiff. Again, an illustration of the day. How many of you have ridden horses? Yeah, we tend not to do that today. Some of you have. How do you make a horse go left or right? You pull on the rein. And when you pull on the rein, the horse's head turns. Horse follows the head. When it says made their neck stiff, it means no matter how much you pull on the reins, that horse ain't moving. It's going the way it wants to go, and it couldn't care less which way you want to go. 
That's what God is saying about the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Like a stubborn mule who is not going to change his path. It says, but made their neck stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction. You know, that word instruction is not really well translated, is it? The Hebrew word is musar, M-U-S-A-R, and it means discipline, correction, or chastening. What's that? It's used a lot in Proverbs. But it literally means the reason people did not incline their ear is because they refused to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Why? What are the false prophets telling them? Everything's fine. God will not call you to account. There's no judgment day coming. I certainly hope you all realize that yes, there is a judgment day coming. And it's coming in a hurry. So let's be ready for it. Back to Jeremiah 17 verse 24. And it shall be if you heed me carefully, says the Lord. If you heed me how? Carefully. carefully. Meaning what? It says literally, if you really listen to me. It's an infinitive of emphasis. If listening, you will really listen. Says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of this city on the Sabbath day. But hallow the Sabbath day to do no work in it. Then shall enter the gates of this city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever. What's that? Reminds you of what happens with the two cities. Oh, with the closed gates on the day of the invasion. Oh, recently with the closed gates on the day of the invasion, yes. There were kibbutzim in Israel who had the gates closed on October 7th because it was Shabbat. And those kibbutzim did not get attacked. When the terrorists came to their gates, they found the gates locked and they went other places to kibbutzim and people assembled who were not keeping the Sabbath, and they were the ones who got slaughtered and kidnapped. But I want you to stop for a moment and think about these verses hard. With all the sins that were going on in Jerusalem, they were shedding innocent blood, they were worshiping other gods. God said, let me tell you this. If you will do this one thing, if you will hallow the Sabbath, then you will have a descendant of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem forever. The city of Jerusalem shall never fall. It will be inhabited forever. And it will be populated by the children of Israel forever. That was the offer of God. If you will just keep 
the Sabbath. Let's go back to Exodus 31. I mentioned it a minute ago, but I want us to read it. I want us to look at it. I want us to think about it. Why was the Sabbath the one that God chose to put all those promises on? It's a sign that they worship him. And if you will keep the Sabbath every week and keep it holy, where does it start bringing your focus onto God? It's like if you start keeping the Sabbath, everything tends to flow toward. We'll flow out from it. We'll flow to God. We'll keep your, your focus on God. And pretty soon the other sins you'll turn away from. They'll disappear. Exodus 31, verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Think of Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This word saying means these words came from the mouth of God. Speak also to the children of Israel, not to Israel, to the children of Israel. That's a broader term. That's like the commonwealth of Israel in Ephesians chapter 2. Saying, that is, don't change a word. Surely my Sabbath you shall keep. Why does it say my Sabbath and not your Sabbath? Why doesn't it say pick a day? Because it belongs to the Lord. In, in Exodus, Leviticus, Genesis, God keeps emphasizing it's my Sabbath. It's mine. Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it's a sign. The word sign in Hebrew is oath, O-T-H. It's like the wedding ring. It's what shows that we are the bride of God. It's a sign between me and you throughout your generations. How long is that? Forever. That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. What does it mean by everyone who profanes it? Jew or Gentile. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Remember the Ten Commandments, there's only one that mentions the Gentiles specifically, and that's the Sabbath. Work shall be done, it may be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Holy to whom? It's holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Which literally says, dying he shall die. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the children of Israel. What's that next word? Forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested, he shabbated, and was refreshed. When he had made an end of speaking with him, Mount Sinai gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So what was the last thing the Lord said to Moses before he gives him the tablets of the Ten Commandments to take down the mountain? Keep the Sabbath. Now there's people that are going to say, Wayne, I don't know that it includes the Gentiles. Well, if that's what you think, let's go to Isaiah 56, where God tells us in no uncertain terms. Isaiah 56. 
Isaiah 56. Let's do verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord. Did Isaiah make these words up? Did he go to bed one night and say, how can I trick and hurt the children of Israel tomorrow? No. Keep justice. That word keep is from the verb shamar, to guard, to protect. Keep justice and do righteousness for my salvation, my Yeshua is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. That word man is Enosh and it refers to the Jewish people. And my righteousness to be revealed too. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it. That second man is Adam. A-D-A-M as in the husband of Eve. So this says whether you're Jew or Gentile, you descend from Adam, it applies to you. Who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps, that's also the verb shamar, to guard, his hand from doing any evil. So keeps his hand from doing any evil encompasses all of the commandments. But there's one that God separates out is more important than the rest. Who keeps from defiling the Sabbath. Let's just go down to verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner. That Hebrew word is not goy. It is not ger. It is nakar. It's somebody who is not born in the Jewish nation. They're a pagan nation far out in the world. But they don't want to be pagans anymore because it says who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. To join themselves means they're turned away from the pagan idols. They want to worship God and him only, like Ruth in the book of Ruth. To love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Notice we said to serve him and now to be his servants. The emphasis is on obedience. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. The covenant would include all of the commandments. But again, Sabbath is set apart specifically. And the word nakar does not apply to the Jewish people. These are the non-Jews. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath holds my fast my covenant. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? It's a kingdom. My holy mountain refers to the messianic kingdom. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. What does Messiah say is the house of prayer for all nations? the temple. It says their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. That's John chapter 10 verse 16 about one shepherd, one flock. So look at Isaiah chapter 58, since we're in Isaiah. Time's running short, but we're not there yet. Isaiah 58, starting in verse 13. Notice 58 comes after 56. You notice that, right? Yeah. So who's it talking to? All of God's people. Verse 13 says, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, what is God's holy day? The Sabbath. And call the Sabbath a delight. That's the word oneg. That's 
while we do at the start of every Shabbat. The holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then. Verse 13 began with if, 14 begins then. Here's the blessing that comes. If you will make the Sabbath of the Lord a delight, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. That's in the Messianic kingdom, by the way. And feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do we know that the Sabbath is forever and ever? Go to Isaiah 66. God emphasizes it. It even goes into the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 66 verses 22 to 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. That just means forever and ever without end. Le'olamba ed. So shall your descendants, that's Israel, and your name, Israel, remain. It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Is all flesh a broad, all-encompassing term of all human beings? Yes, it is. But, but, Wayne, you didn't take into account Colossians chapter 2. Well, let's go to Colossians chapter 2. It does not say what most people think it says. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2. Most people want to start in verse 16, but verse 16 begins with so. Is that a new topic? It is not. So we must start in verse 8. Beware. What does beware mean? Watch out. Watch out. Be careful. Lest anyone cheat you. Which means people are going to try and cheat you. Through philosophy and empty deceit. That is through their own imaginations and thoughts. According to the tradition of men. Not according to the tradition of God. According to the basic principles of the world. That's not God's Torah. Um, Rose, can you shut that door there? It blew open. Which is going to get you all cold. Verse 8 ends, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Messiah. Who taught the commandments? Messiah did. So now jump to verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Do principalities and powers refer to God? No. Refers to Satan and his fallen angels. Messiah conquered Satan. He did not conquer God. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, the so is Messiah defeated Satan. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Messiah. Theologians take just those two verses and say, see, God told us not to keep these things. 
But once we study it out, you're going to see it means don't let the world take these things from you. Don't let anyone judge you or condemn you because you are keeping the food and drink laws. That is, not eating piggies, etc. Or regarding a festival, that's Passover. No, don't do Passover, do Easter. No, no, no. Why did God command? Or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. A shadow of things to come means they prophesy about events that are still to come. They prophesy about the second coming of Messiah. They teach us about Messiah. That's why he says, but the substance is a Messiah. We have to keep reading to know that that's the right reading. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Hey, isn't that what it said back in verse 8? Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Yep. Same topic. So verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. That's not Torah. Who taught false humility and worship of angels? Those were the Gnostics. Those were Satan's people. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Mind in Greek is what? Gnosis. That's where Gnosticism comes from. And not holding fast to the head, that's Messiah, from whom all the body, nourishing it together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Messiah from the basic principles of the world, go back to verse 8. The basic principles of the world is not God's Torah. Those are Satan's teachings. Those are the man-made rules and regulations of ascetic Gnosticism that you can become a god if you will deny yourself all earthly pleasure. If you enjoy a T-bone steak, you can't have it. You must deny yourself so you can achieve godhood. Verse 20, therefore, if you died with Messiah from the basic principles of the world, why is the living in the world? Do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Don't let them take away these things God gave us that teach about Messiah and turn you back to man-made rules and regulations that have no value. Verse 23, these things, these man-made rules and regulations of ascetic Gnosticism indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. That is, it sounds nice. It sounds like we should deny ourselves all earthly pleasure, false humility, and neglect of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So why would you let someone take away from you the things God commanded that teach about Messiah and take you back to man-made rules and regulations that have no value whatsoever? Verse 30, if then, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, if then you were raised with Messiah, seek those things which are above. The things that come from God, the things that lead you to God, that lead you to Messiah, that teach you about Messiah. Don't let people take those things away from you. Go back to Jeremiah. 
I mean, it's especially important because how many of you have been mocked and made fun of by your family, your friend, or you're trying to earn your salvation? No. We are trying to do what? Messiah said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do you love God? Do you have faith in God? Then we'll walk as he asks us to walk. Back to Jeremiah 17, verse 26. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. That is, the temple would never be destroyed if the people would simply repent enough to keep the Sabbath. Verse 27 is the other side, the flip side. God always gives them a choice. Like he said in Deuteronomy 30, I said today before you, life and good, death and evil. Choose life. Verse 27 says, but if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, the day of the Sabbath, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. And so it was, 586 BCE. Nebuchadnezzar marched into the city, sacked the temple, burned Jerusalem to the ground, and slaughtered everybody. God said, if you'll do just this one thing, and they said, no, we will not. You can't make us. And you won't judge us. After all, we're Abraham's descendants. 586 BCE. Verse 27 was literally fulfilled. And Jerusalem burned to the ground. And that's where we stop for this week. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1.